0: Hello, my name is Sandy Adamaitis, the social media director for the Page International Screenwriting Awards, and your host for the Writer's Hangout, a podcast that celebrates the many stages of writing, from inspiration to the first draft, revising, getting a project made, and everything in between. We'll talk to the best and the brightest in the entertainment industry and create a space where you can hang out, learn from the pros, and have fun. Hey writers, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to tell you the story of screenwriter Gary DeVore. Terry, have you, do you recognize the name Gary DeVore? I don't. Okay. Um, I think a lot of our listeners are um, going to find his story fascinating. On the morning of June 27th, 1997, 55 year old screenwriter Gary DeVore a burly man with salt and pepper hair, who was known for writing late 80 action movies and the Billy Crystal Gregory Hines buddy cop film Running Scared. Um, he was getting ready to head back to his home in Santa Barbara from the Santa Fe ranch of his good friend and actress, Marsha Mason. You know that name, right? Yes. Uh, goodbye Girl. Beautiful. It was such a good film. Um, Gary always went to Marsha's Ranch when he needed to hunker down and figure out a tough script problem. The, this visit was no different. Gary had been struggling with the ending of his latest screenplay, The Big Steel, which was a passion project uh, of his, and now he was done. And if you're for the audience, if you're going to drive straight through like Gary was planning to do, Santa Fe, New Mexico to Santa Barbara, where he lived, is, um, what would you say, about a 14 to 15 hour ride? If you're cruising, yeah. Okay. Uh, Once behind the wheel of his Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. I just love that. I love that Eddie Bauer. That was really big, I think, in the 80s. It was huge. Yeah. Gary phoned his wife, Wendy, saying he finished the script and he was heading home. Later that night and five hours from home at 10.20 p.m., Gary filled up at the High Sierra Oasis gas station in Fenner, California. He got back on the road, and two hours later, Gary called Wendy, again saying he was past Barstow. Uh, again, for the audience, Fenner, California is midway point between Santa Barbara and Las Vegas. Wendy wanted Gary to stop and spend the night at a hotel, but they had friends coming over to watch the Tyson-Holyfield match the next day, and he told Wendy he wanted to press on. Wendy was watching Real Sex on HBO. That sounds like it was an interesting show. Wow, Wendy. Yeah. And told Gary that she would call him back when it was over. Gary then stopped for coffee on Highway 14 at a Denny's around 12.45 a.m. in Mojave, California. Mojave, California is located in the southwestern region of the Mojave Desert. Gary is now two and a half hours away from home. As promised, Wendy called Gary, but she couldn't get through this time. She tried three times from 1 a.m. to 1.10 with no luck. Then her phone rang. It was Gary, and he sounded distant. Was that you trying to call me, honey? Wendy remembered thinking, what a strange thing to say. After all, who else would be trying to call at 1 a.m.? Are you okay, Gary? Wendy asked. I'm pumping pure adrenaline here, Gary responded. Later, Wendy told authorities she thought that to mean Gary was scared and someone must have been in the car with him. This is a man whose business is words, she was saying. Pumping pure adrenaline means something. Wendy drifted off to sleep and woke up at 9 a.m. Gary still wasn't home. At 1 p.m., a worried Wendy called the police, only to be told nothing could be done. Gary was an adult, and adults had to be missing for 24 hours before a report can be taken.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really stupid rule, by the way. I it's, hate. That does sound so wrong.
0: I know. I hate that rule. I really do. Because
1: people I, do know when people are missing mm-hmm. that it's time to look for them. Yes. Sometimes uh, that's a half an hour.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know your spouse's uh, comings and goings. That's right. Um also three hours in the desert, if you're lost, that that's precious time taken away.
1: Yeah, this is during the day, right? hmm Yeah, that's okay.
0: okay. So at four PM, Wendy filed a missing persons report for Gary and the search became a multi agency project, including the Santa Barbara Sheriff's, LA County, and get this, the FBI. Wendy called all of her and Gary's friends for help and sheriffs organized search teams and combed the area he was last seen, the Denny's in the Mojave Desert and the gas station in Fenner, California. A childhood friend of Gary's stepped up and offered a $100,000 reward for his recovery, which enticed bikers and men with bloodhounds to join the search. In Palmdale, California, Along Highway 14, the aqueduct bridge was driven over countless times. They kind of figured if there was going to be an accident, that's where it would have happened. Underneath the aqueduct bridge flows the water from the Owens River in the eastern Sierra Nevada Mountains to Los Angeles, California. Gary's buddies arrived and rode on horseback, searching for their friends under the relentless and unforgiving sun, while helicopters soared from above. Gary's ex-wife called people she knew and special forces for help. They searched the aqueduct with infrared. Dozens of agents in suits began to arrive one after another, claiming to be CIA, NSA, and military. Wendy didn't ask questions. She was happy to have anyone's help. A week of searching went by. No, Gary. Wendy returned home to Santa Barbara. There she discovered the one copy of the big steel was missing from the home office. By week two, the men in suits disappeared and only law enforcement remained. Now, it was Wendy's time in the barrel. Sheriffs got in her face and tried to intimidate her into confessing she took part in Gary's disappearance. She was asked to take a lie detector test. She did and failed. Wendy wondered if it was because of the extreme stress. People began to accept Gary's death. The chance of survival in the desert for three weeks are small. Media attention lessened and month after month ticked by, but on the first anniversary of Gary's disappearance, the press once again became interested in the story. Wendy was quoted as saying, I'm not going to believe Gary's gone until I see a body. Nine days later, on Friday, July 7th, 1998, an amateur detective named Douglas Crawford, who was fascinated by Gary's disappearance, had a hunch that Gary could be under the waters of the California Aqueduct in Palmdale, California, as that was recently the location of another death. Although it had been searched by helicopters and people on the ground, Crawford was right police-located skeletal remains inside Gary's submerged Eddie Bauer Edition Ford Explorer in an upright position, 15 feet underwater, in the concrete open river channel. After the police had retrieved the Ford Explorer from the murky water, Gary's gun and his laptop containing the big steel couldn't be found. The SUV headlights were discovered to be in the Off position, and Gary, known for never wearing a seatbelt, was belted in tight. All strange, right? Yes. Well, I buried the lead here. Gary's hands were missing. That's right, the writer had no hands. This has got to be some kind of message, right?
1: That's gruesome.
0: All this was considered very suspicious as, again, the aqueduct bridge was searched when Gary initially disappeared and had showed no signs of impact at the time. I mean, there would be skid marks. There would be a rail broken. Something. Something. When Gary first went missing, his case became popular with conspiracy theorists. And now with the discovery of the SUV minus Gary's script gun and hands, the speculations went through the roof. Let's break three of them down now. The number one theory out there enemy of the state. Gary was murdered by the CIA. I need to take a step back here a second, explain something. The CIA had a long history in Hollywood, and it's been alleged that back in the 1950s, they started a project called Operation Mockingbird, where the CIA began recruiting American journalists and writers into a propaganda network. The recruited writers were put on the CIA payroll and instructed to write fake stories that promoted government ideas while dispelling communist ones. Gary's script, The Big Steal, he told Friends would be the hardest-hitting film studios had ever seen, featuring disturbing details against the U.S. government involving drugs, bank robbery, and the 1989 invasion of Panama. Would the CIA really murder a screenwriter over a movie? Well, Gary was known to have a working relationship with the CIA, and his ideology about the U.S. government had changed from pro to disillusioned over the years. But is that enough to have someone murdered? That leads us to theory number two, the invisible man. Gary DeVore is in the Witness Protection Program. Did the CIA become aware of the powerful and damning secrets Gary was about to spill to the world via his screenplay? Did they stop him that night on the road, tell him the only way out alive was to disappear, start a new life? Is that why it took a year to find Gary's body? Did the CIA stage the aqueduct area? lot of questions. Gary's friends and Wendy said Gary would never agree to such a thing. But then again... Wendy once said she saw a homeless man in a shopping center in L.A. who looked exactly like Gary as she imagined him having aged 15 years. The man talked about conspiracy theories and said he fought in the Gulf War. Wendy never saw the man again. The third theory is the least common. So I'll end with this. Double indemnity. Wendy had Gary killed. Possible but no evidence was ever found. Terry, who do you think killed the screenwriter with no hands?
1: Hmm. Well, I think we can eliminate Eddie Bauer. <laughs> and um, the hands thing freaks me out. Uh, that That's really kind of like a mafia move.
0: Right, so yeah. So you
1: kind of feel like... Uh,
0: he wasn't would, missing an arm, two hands. Yeah,
1: why would the CIA want that out there?
0: A message not to write anything against <laughs> to, the government. Not to get the political, but that's to, to write anything. Yeah, yeah, but to whom? People that are interested in it? Well, his screenplay did uncover some things about the invasion of Panama that he felt um, would be uh, like a bomb dropping. I mean also we're talking about the 80s. I think if that came out in today wouldn't even make page 1 of any of the newspapers. <laughs> but back then, you know, government uh mishaps. Yeah, I think what I'm
1: asking is that if the CIA, the kind of organization that wants to send a a, a scare kill out.
0: Um, and
1: I, I have problems with that. Yeah. Although it really seems like that um, that fits the story pretty well. And I know that the CIA has kind of changed a lot since the internet became popular. I think they I think they were more active before. I feel like they're they're more in hiding now than they ever were before. I think they you know. Uh, I think they messed around a lot more, but the information flow tends to have them to be even more secretive now.
0: So do you believe that Operation Mockingbird did happen, that the CIA was, um, you know, just kind of infiltrating the American psyche with positive stories? Um, and journalists and screenwriters helped with that back in the day. I just don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we just don't know. We just don't know. Do you think that Gary, I mean, he seemed like a successful, happy man. Everything that I read, him and Wendy were very happy. He had um, really cool friends. It was really a boys club in the 80s for screenwriting, and he was in the mix. I, I can't see him uh, disappearing starting a new life mm-hmm. um, and everybody else who knew him said that he would never go into the witness protection program
1: right and it's a the car is so identifiable that we know that he's that that's somebody's in there it would be setting up it would if it's not his skeleton it's somebody else's if he's setting that up that seems like a lot of a lot of work. Yeah, that's
0: a lot of work to find a skeleton. Even if you are um a cool guy from yeah. the eighties. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So obviously let me if I was just gonna make this a casual decision on this, I would say he drove off the road. Right. Possible to to right. do that.
0: Tired. It was very late at night.
1: Yeah. He's uh he's energized by something.
0: Yes, that feeling yeah. when you finish a project, you're happy.
1: Yeah. And maybe you're not ta- taking the care that you would and it's been a long drive so he's off and he's into the water it's think, deep yeah, it's it deep, deep and you've mentioned it's happened before mhm yeah yes. so it's possible it's
0: happened numerous times okay but no skin marks um i uh, looked at pictures um i didn't see any break in these guardrails but you know it's kind of hard to see yeah in photos sometimes yeah
1: and the other question I would ask you is on these on this hands thing. Uh, I barely got through biology in the high school. <laughs> yes. that I went to. I would say I need to know if the lack of tendons and other parts that kind of keep the bones together, if if over time those were fish and other things. Right.
0: Yeah, that is a possibility. Um, there were different. Uh, pathology's done and um you know like in an, like anything else in the world one uh, pathologist uh said absolutely this can happen um water wears things down uh the hands could have detached and then you have other people saying it's impossible for just the hands to detach oh, from okay. his body that's a good point so um and it was just skeletal remains no no skin, nothing. And I think if I remember correctly, the hands were also found in the back end of the car. Oh, okay. So, um, bones and, uh, worn down by water over the years. Uh, you, they couldn't specifically say exactly what the bones were. And I'm sure back then, uh, you didn't, you don't have quite the forensics that you do now, Right, but, um, that, just the screenwriter with no hands just sounds.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting if uh, those hands were in the back with the computer finishing a sitcom piece, <laughs> wouldn't that be then you'd know. Yeah, then, you, he then didn't we would stop. know. Yes, he <laughs> would just kept going. He so said, "This has to be done. This has to be done. I have to finish."
0: I am fascinated by Gary Devore. Um, I just want to. I hope. I I hope Wendy is okay. Just how horrible you're just talking to your husband and. He just never makes it home. And they seem to be such a lovely couple. Um, I did, in my research, I want to let you know, um, my resources for this story were a Vice article written by Thomas Gain. And I leaned very heavy on a book entitled The Writer With No Hands by Matthew Alford and a documentary of the same name by William Westaway. The book is available on Amazon. Kindle, but the award-winning doc is really hard to find in the United States. I spent hours searching for it, and then I finally reached out to the director, William, who was kind enough to send me a link, and I really appreciated that, and I want to say a big thank you to William. I highly recommend both the book and the doc if you'd like to learn more about Gary DeVore, the writer with no hands. That's a wrap for The Writer's Hangout. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and thrive. Till we get to hang out again, keep writing. The world needs your stories. The Writer's Hangout is sponsored by the PAGE International Screenwriting Awards. Executive Producer, Kristen O'Vern. Producers, Terry Sampson and Sandy Adamitis. Music by Ethan Stoller.